now bring you Pro-Life Activism from Creation to Death with Jim Sedlak. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Activism from Creation to Death. This program is intended for all those who want to create a culture of life in the United States. Every week we bring you updates on what's going on in the pro-life movement, what's breaking in Washington, D.C. and around the country. And today we have an interesting guest and an interesting program, uh, starting out uh, with what's going on in Rhode Island, but then expanding to a lot of other activity uh, in the United States. But before we get into today's program, I ask you to say a Hail Mary with me to ask the Blessed Mother, to shower God's graces on all those who are involved with or listening to this program today so that we will receive the message that she wants each of us to get at this moment. And so if you would join me, please. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you so much for saying that prayer with me. It is always a good idea whenever you begin a new activity during the day to ask Mary to shower God's graces on what you are doing. And that's why we begin every one of our programs uh, with that prayer, just asking for Mary's blessings here on Mario's, Mary's radio network, the Radio Maria network. Okay, we have a, a special guest today. His name is Thomas Ope, and uh, Mr. Ope graduated from Georgetown University in the Columbus School of Law at Catholic University. He has a master's in law from the Georgetown Law Center. After working for the Thomas More Society as a pro bono attorney, he joined the society as a full-time lawyer in 2015. Currently, he is on the executive committee and on the board of the Thomas More Society. Mr. Rope has appeared in cases throughout the country, focusing on Thomas More Society's mission of supporting religious freedom, family, and the pro-life cause. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jim. It's great to be here. We saw an item within the last week about activities in, in Rhode Island, and that's what uh, prompted us to ask you to come on. But whenever I have a new guest on the show, I always just want to let my audience know a little bit about how they got involved in the pro-life cause. Well, <clears throat> I, I was thinking about that as we prayed the Hail Mary, and there's a direct uh, link between that and my pro-life activities. It was in the late 90s, a friend of mine, uh, we, were, we were having dinner, and he said, well, you know, I'm going over to uh, an abortion clinic to pray, and uh, would you uh, be willing to do that? And I had never uh, done that, and I was a little bit, uh, you know, a little nervous about that. But I didn't want him to think that I was, you know, some kind of a milk toast. So I said, yeah, I'll come with you. And, and then uh, I went with them to pray, and, and lo and behold, there's a whole bunch of uh, Catholics who are praying the rosary there. And so I started going every Saturday. This is in suburban Hinsdale, suburban Chicago in Hinsdale, at the abortion clinic there, and 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 joined uh, just a wonderful group of uh, prayer warriors, so to speak. And uh, after some years, that clinic closed down, so we moved our uh, our prayer activity to another clinic uh, in Glen Ellen. And now we're doing the same, and that closed down. And now we're doing the same thing in Downers Grove. So uh, it, it it really brought me into. Uh, a great group of people and, you know, praying with the, uh, Mary's prayer uh, it helped form me. 
to become uh, more actively pro-life. And so I then said, hey, i got to get involved with this. And I started working for Tom Brecca at the Thomas More Society. And then uh, over time when they said, saw, hey, well, this guy's not a total flunky, uh, they said, well, why don't you come in and, and, and we'll pay you to do, to, to do uh, legal work for us. And so, uh, you know, just a wonderful story. My career, I feel so blessed to be to have been drawn into it. And, you know, I always tell people, hey, uh, accept invitations, uh, keep your eyes open, uh, uh, pray the rosary, uh, and and you'll find all sorts of wonderful things will happen to you. Congratulations to you and, and the people working with you on closing down uh, two clinics and working on your third. That's fantastic. Something I can do, you can do your whole life, too. I know a whole bunch of wonderful people as a result of that. I, I caught some news about a case in Rhode Island that the Thomas More Society is involved in and you are involved in. What's going on in Rhode Island? In the blue states, or at least some of the blue states, uh, they're looking ahead to see the demise of Roe v. Wade, and they're passing radical laws to support abortion. And they did that in Illinois, they did that in New York, and they did it in Rhode Island. The, the Rhode Island Constitution back in the 80s was amended to include uh, a due process and equal protection clause, but uh, because of you know, controversy out of, of abortion. And of course, Roe v. Wade is talking about the 14th Amendment due process and equal protection clause. The, the people in Rhode Island said, hey, we don't want this to support abortion. So they put in a specific phrase in that section, that equal protection and due process section of the Rhode Island Constitution, stating that it should be understood that this section does not grant or secure any right relating to abortion or the funding thereof. So when so what happened was when you know these blue states started passing laws to entrench uh, abortion in case uh, Roe v. Wade was was reversed, uh, they did it by their general assembly. Uh, they didn't amend the constitution; they just passed a law saying we think abortion is a fundamental right, and they they eliminated their partial birth abortion law, and they eliminated the uh, fetal homicide law. Basically, they're trying to get rid of any laws that might give a right of law to uh, unborn children, to fetuses. And so uh, a law professor in that area, her name's Diane McGee, she filed a lawsuit against the governor who, wrote, who signed the legislation, which, which, which was in 2019. And she basically said, hey, listen, you, your General Assembly essentially modified the Constitution of Rhode Island by writing in an abortion right. And they didn't do it in the right way. They didn't do it by a vote of the whole people. The Rhode Island Constitution calls itself a sacred document and provides that it could only be changed by the whole people, quote, whole people, unquote, which means a vote of the whole, you know, electorate of Rhode Island. So Diane McGee filed suit saying uh, you didn't do that. You effectively uh, amended the Rhode Island Constitution, and you didn't do it according to the way it's supposed to be done. So you have to roll back that law, and you cannot enforce that abortion law. And so uh, she went to court, and the court, the lower court, as you know, one could appreciate, you know, threw the case out, and did it basically on the basis of, of lack of standing. Now uh, her plaintiffs were voters and uh, fetuses. Uh, a viable fetus and a non pre-viable fetus. And so the judge said, I don't think any of those people have, any of those plaintiffs have standing, so you're out. So uh, she's now before the Rhode Island Supreme Court 
arguing that the case should be reinstated. And uh, we filed an amicus brief on her behalf, arguing that, indeed, fetuses do have standing and the vote and voters do have standing when they're denied the opportunity to vote as required by the Rhode Island Constitution. So that that's the, uh, the general outline of what this case is about. The, obviously, the pro-abortion people just want to force abortion on everybody any way they can. You know, it was unique when, when I uh, read about this and then uh, looked at the uh, at the Constitution of Rhode Island. I mean, I, I read what you just read to our audience uh, and said, wow, they, they you know have everything there to prevent what happened from happening. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think the Thomas More Society is, is, is right on in, in filing the amicus brief in support of this. Does this happen in, in other states, too, or, or is Rhode Island just very unique on this right now? Well, I don't know of any other constitutional provision like this, but the requirement for standing is a, a standard requirement in a lawsuit. And basically what, what it means, standing, what it means is that you just can't go into court and just uh, rant and rave about something. You have to have suffered an actual injury. In other words, if I was, you know, suppose I, I didn't like uh, some law that occurred in some state, you know, I, I can't just go into court and say, hey, change that law. The the, uh, constitu- the U.S. Constitution says that the judicial power is limited to cases or controversies, and that's been interpreted to mean that you have to have standing. That means you have to have had an injury. So the judge in this case said, well, there's no – I don't see any injury here. You know, fetuses aren't – they're not persons under the 14th Amendment, so how could they be injured? And so our argument was uh, – it's ironic, too. I'll point that out. But our argument basically is, hey, by this law that you just passed – you just eliminated the fetal homicide law. In other words, me as a fetus was protected by this law, and you've just excised it from the statute books. And so, uh, so that's an actual injury to me as a fetus. So what's ironic is that they're passing this law in, in Rhode Island to uh, eliminate any possible legal standing for an unborn child. That's how radical it is. You know, they, they eliminated the partial birth abortion ban, even, and the, the fetal homicide law. And yet, they're hopefully, if the Supreme Court in Rhode Island looks at it properly, they're giving the fetus a standing by way of an actual injury to argue against that change in the law. So that's what's really kind of interesting, uh, that by trying to eliminate a, a fetus's right to be protected in law, they're giving standing, in our view, for the fetus to argue, you know, through its mother or father, that this should not be done. So, uh, you know, if, if we can get that principle recognized, that's an additional, you know, legal uh, argument on behalf of an unborn child. So uh, we're hoping that the Supreme Court looks at it our way, and because standing doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're going to win your lawsuit, but it, all you have to do is identify a legal interest, and there is a legal interest by the unborn child by by the fact, the fact that legal protection was removed from uh, the law. We made a similar argument for voters. You know, the, a right to vote is, is at, at the is fundamental in a de- democracy, right? And, and if you if you had passed a law saying a group of people didn't have a right to vote on something, of course they would have standing to argue that that was improper. And so, you know, the idea that voters who are denied the right to vote, and these are voters who would vote against this change, but they're denied a right to vote because it was done through the uh, General Assembly, which is, which is not the whole people. 
the, the idea that they wouldn't have standing is pretty ludicrous, really. You always have standing to, uh, to uh, uh, contest a dilution of your voting power. Of course, we all know that the preborn child is a person, is a human being created by God. But it's it's really incredible that he, he, you know, the judge didn't even uh, take into account the voters, you know, who are all born people exercising their rights and uh, and were deprived of that. And uh, as you said, that 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 just it looked like he was looking for any excuse just to throw out the the case. That's what we see all throughout the country. There's such a, a, a ideological uh, hidebounness in the cases and, a, and the judges that if you if you get the wrong judge, you cannot get a, a straight uh, you know answer. I, I have to commend Diane McGee for her creativity in, in her lawsuit and and her courage because uh, you know uh, it's it's going against the grain. Everybody goes along, right? They just go along with whatever. Uh, you know the the common mentality is, and you need people like her to stand up and say no. You need to look at it correctly, and that's what the whole pro life movement is about is is to say no. We uh, you know unborn children are human beings and deserve protection under law. That's really what our mission is at Thomas More is to help foster that through litigation and through education. I know these cases are hard to predict in terms of how long they're going to take, you know, when a, when a decision will be handed down in the, in Rhode Island. You know, are we talking about a case that would be, you think, decided within a month or two, or is this going to be a drawn out? I think it will be decided maybe in the next year. With I wouldn't say a month or two, but I would, you know, I don't know for sure, but it's generally about a year. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, Right now, if they, if they affirm, then the case is over and that argument is lost. This will be a panel. The, the appeals court, is that a panel of judges, like three or four or something? Yes, that's right. There's, there's I, I don't know, there's six or eight uh, judges in the Supreme Court. Okay. So, that, yeah, that, that's an, it's an important case, and it's before the, the Rhode Island Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, it's they'll look at it carefully, I'm sure. But, you know, how it goes. If you've got uh, pro-choice uh, judges, uh, you know that predominate, then it's like you know you're, you're likely to lose. Right. So that's why right. it's so important. That's why it's so important that the judiciary have people who are not biased and who can look at things uh, in an unbiased way. And our country, you know, as you know, Jim, it, it's polarized on this issue of abortion, and uh, it will continue to be until there's some solution to it. And I, you know, I don't see that happening soon. You know, the, the, the Dobbs case is uh, the next time, you know, the next occasion for the Supreme Court to really look at Roe v. Wade. And um, yesterday, over 50 amicus briefs were filed with the court by all kinds of different organizations uh, supporting the, the uh, Supreme Court to examine, re-examine and uh, jettison Roe v. Wade as a binding precedent. So, it'll, and that's going to be decided before next June. So, by by this time next year, we're going to have this decision down in the Dobbs case, and it's going to perhaps uh, change things a lot about abortion in the United States. Well, speaking of the Dobbs case, um, I, we're f familiar with it, of course, but could you take just a, a few minutes and just explain um, what the Dobbs case is and why 
um, it's, it's being uh, viewed by both sides um, as a really important case. Right, yeah. The Dobb case originated, originated in Mississippi. So the Mississippi legislature passed a law saying that after 15 weeks uh, of gestation, uh, abortion is for of a fetus. Abortion is prohibited. Now, Roe v. Wade uh, in 1973 said that the state would only have a compelling interest to protect fetal life at the point of viability. They use the word viability. And that they define that as when a fetus could live outside of the mother's womb. And so uh, any time before viability, uh, the state would not have uh, a right to override a woman's choice to have an abortion. It's really what Roe v. Wade said. And uh, so the Supreme Court, so now Mississippi's law directly uh, contradicts that. And so the Supreme Court decided to take petition for writ of certiorari earlier this year, uh, and they said the question that they're considering is whether any pre-viability prohibition uh, on abortion could be considered constitutional. Or they actually said, are all pre-viable prohibitions on abortion unconstitutional? And if they say no, some prohibitions of abortion pre-viability are constitutional, then Roe v. Wade is effectively... Uh, knocked off its pedestal. That's a very important issue. The last time they really looked at Roe v. Wade was in the Casey case in the 1990s. So this is a watershed moment. It'll, it's the most important case, in my view, for the next term of the Supreme Court. And everybody, you know, the people who are interested on all sides are want their say-so on, on this issue. So it's a very important issue. Uh, if you go on the uh, Supreme Court website, you can look and read all of these uh, amicus briefs, and you would be a very good way to learn a lot about this issue by reading those briefs at the, on the Supreme Court website. Now, just to, to clarify for the audience, when you talk about viability, viability, you know, over the years uh, has gotten uh, earlier and earlier in a pregnancy. But right now, it's it's generally considered about 20, 21 weeks uh, gestation. Uh, and so that is certainly beyond the 15 weeks that Mississippi uh, has put in into their law. So that's why they, right. the, uh, the viability issue is very important here. Uh, now, I, I believe yeah. Thomas Moore... Uh, society is one of the groups that filed a uh, amicus brief. Could you kind of sum up for us what what position you are taking on this? Uh, an amicus brief is a friend of the court brief. Amicus means friend, and so they're filed by people who have an interest and are trying to help the court decide the case by pointing out uh, different facets of the case or facts or laws that are relevant to the decision-making process that the court goes through. And so we filed an amicus brief, uh, we filed it yesterday, where we argue that, you know, viability is not a good dividing line between when abortion can be uh, uh, accepted and legal and when it cannot be, because as you pointed out earlier, it's, it moves. But also we, we say that it, it, since 1973, it's be become abundantly clear that human life begins at fertilization. You know, the idea that the state does not have an interest in protecting human life prior to viability or a sufficient interest is, in our view, um, erroneous because unborn children are, are fully human organisms as of the moment of fertilization. They, an organism is a self-directed being 
it's not a cell or like an arm or, or a leg. It's an actual organism, a, a whole that's self-directed, and it has its own separate DNA. It's connected to the mother, of course, but it's an absolutely separate organism that needs protection in the law. And, and our reading of the 14th Amendment is that it, it was passed to protect you know, black people and all human beings to prevent exactly what's going on here, which is an unequal application of the law, the withdrawal of legal protection from human beings which is what has happened with Roe v. Wade. So um, our effort is to explain to the court that in the Roe v. Wade, one of the reasons they adopted viability, they said, well, nobody knows when life begins. And, and they agreed in, the, in Roe v. Wade that if, in fact, it could be proven that a fetus is a human being, then you couldn't have abortion. It would be murder. And so we're saying between 1973 and now, with all of the advances in science and microbiology and, and, and sonograms, and you can now, on lane, see how a, a fetus divides and forms. And we know just so much more about it. And it's absolutely clear that human life begins at fertilization, that human organism, that self-directed organism in the life cycle begins at that point. And we're all in that life cycle. Whether we're born or pre-born or old, <laughs> we're all living that life cycle that begins at fertilization. So there's just no valid argument that you could withhold uh, equal protection to that human being before birth. We also say that Roe v. Wade uh, was decided where in a context where uh, women had more of a burden of childbirth and a societal burden as a result of pregnancy. And some, while obviously have, bearing a child is, a, is a, uh, you know, a major event in a woman's life, some of the, uh, of the outcomes of pregnancy have been alleviated. And uh, one of those is a woman doesn't have to raise the child. You, you, we have these safe haven laws. So a, a woman is not required to raise a child. And that was one of the uh, factors that the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade cited as support for its decision. We're also saying, hey, the law, like 38 states have fetal homicide laws. And those laws basically say if uh, somebody is attacking a woman and kills the woman, say, and kills the, um, the unborn child of the woman, then you have two homicides. So it recognizes the right of a fetus to live. And as, as I mentioned before, that's one of the things that the Rhode Island law did. It removed, eliminated that, that fetal homicide law from Rhode Island law. Why? Because pro-choice ideologues don't want any possible way that an unborn child could be recognized in law. But 38 states do recognize it. We're hoping the U.S. Supreme Court, with its new makeup, with Amy Barrett, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Thomas, Alito, will recognize the rights of, of a preborn human being. The Supreme Court thought back in 1973 that they had issued the final word. Uh, Pro-lifers, you know, back then said, no, no, we're going to get this changed very quickly. All we got to do is, is, you know, get an amendment passed and, and we'll get this changed. And of course, now it's 50 years later 
and the battle continues. Those on the pro-abortion side are just absolutely horrified that, that this battle is still going on because they thought it was settled and, and then settled again in the Casey decision uh, back in 1992. From your perspective, yeah, I know we, we have some more conservative justices now than we did um, you know, in, in 92 or in 73, but um, you know, is this whole topic of abortion, this whole slaughter of children in the womb, do, do you think that this can actually be resolved by a Supreme Court decision? I don't be- believe so. What, what, what I think has to be done is that the Supreme Court has to get out of the, out of the mix. Um, the, the Mississippi brief pointed out the Supreme Court, by its Roe v. Wade decision, essentially eliminates any ability of states to experiment as to how to uh, resolve this question. Because every law that's passed is struck down automatically because of Roe v. Wade. And and uh, they point out, the, once again, the Solicitor General in, in Mississippi points out that the Supreme Court is not gaining any respect as a result of its uh, failure to recognize that Roe v. Wade is, is wrongly decided. They're, they're, they're uh, losing respect, and the, the Supreme Court needs to change that because uh, the, the issue will not go away. So the Supreme Court needs to get out of the equation and let the states uh, make decisions and let the people decide. That's what a democracy is all about, the idea that the Supreme Court can resolve that question for everyone. It's just, it's just not going to work. So I, I think it's going to continue to be very divisive, but at least the, the trends, the pro-life trends in the country will, allow, will be able to be exercised and to, uh, to uh, grow. If, if, in fact, the Supreme Court steps out of the fray. Do, do you see any situation in, in which the Supreme Court uh, would look at all of the scientific evidence that exists today? And as you mentioned, the sonograms, all of that, and come to a conclusion that a child in the womb is, in fact, a human being and is entitled to all the rights and privileges of being a human being in the United States, which means the right to life liberty and pursuit of happiness. Um, is that even possible with the Supreme Court, or, or are we far away from that? Uh, you know, it's not impossible. It seems to me the proper resolution of the issue, uh, the, the Roberts court, the court, you know, John Roberts wants um, consensus wherever possible, so he's very uh, hesitant about making big changes. Uh, but th- that, cha- that, that outcome that you just described is really the final outcome that has to happen. And what I, I don't know if it would happen in one decision, but the, they can begin that process uh, by by allowing Mississippi's judgment about uh, pre-viable uh, uh, unborn children to, to, to be upheld. So that's, it's important that they do that, I think. And the fact that they took that case, I think, indicates that they're ready to do that. Um, otherwise, why would they take the case, right? Well, you're I, right. I, I mean, certainly hope. I certainly hope they don't come out with a decision upholding Roe v. Wade again. I, I don't see how anybody – that could help anyone. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, those of us who lived through the, the 90s and, and thought we're going to see Roe v. Wade overturned back then, um, you know, that is one of the things that, that we get concerned about because, uh, you know, it's not again kind of thing. Um, you know, a lot of people look at the court and, and look at, you know, six to three with six conservatives and, and three liberals. Um, as I've discussed on this show before, uh, we don't 
don't really see that. We see, we see three conservatives, three liberals, and then three who could go whatever way. You know, you have Roberts, yeah. you have Gorsuch, you have Kavanaugh. I, I, I would hate to predict how any of them went. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Jim. I think you're right. So we just have to wait around and, and, <laughs> and see what, how they look at it. And, and knowing, knowing that the struggle for life continues on. And we'll continue on after the court decision. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about, you know, the, the case in Rhode Island and, you know, how it's going to be decided. We've been talking about the Dobbs case, trying to figure out how it's going to be decided. And, of course, it's always uh, tough to, to predict the future. But, you know, if we look back at this last term of the Supreme Court, uh, started in, in October of 2020 and ended uh, the first week of July here in 2021, how do, how do you view that? Do, do you think that the last term of the uh, Supreme Court was good for religious freedom and pro-life topics here in the United States? Uh, well, uh, the, the case I think of is the Fulton v. City of Philadelphia case. Now, that was a 9-0 decision. That case involved the Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia uh, taking the position that they would not qualify gay couples for um, uh, uh, foster parents. And they, the, the city of, Phil, of Philadelphia basically said, we don't care that you've been around here for well over 100 years and that you, you basically started this whole the, the, the foster care and adoptive services in, in Pennsylvania. We don't care about that. We will not do business with you. So they, uh, the Catholic Social Services appealed to the Supreme Court, and there was a 9-0 decision in their favor. Now, that's a good thing for religious freedom. However, what Justice Roberts wasn't able to accomplish is the elimination of the, of the rule that was being used against Catholic Social Services, which is Employment Division v. Smith, which was a 1990 decision that basically said, as long as you don't discriminate against the, the religious exercise, you can do what you want. Government can do what it wants, as long as it just doesn't discriminate. And the proper approach to religious freedom is to uh, red circle an area where government can't come in. It's not a non-discrimination principle. It's a principle that says you have a right to, to, uh, of religious exercise and the government cannot do anything to you for doing that. And, and that's different than non-discrimination. Non-discrimination simply says just don't treat, just treat everybody alike. They didn't get to that point. And so it, that was disappointing in the decision. Justice Alito wrote close to 100 pages in his opinion, in his concurring opinion, saying, well, here's the right way to do it. But unfortunately, as you pointed out, Jim, earlier, Barrett and Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh and, and Barrett went along with Roberts and would not deal with the real issue about religious freedom. So your question, was it a good, for, was it a good term for religious freedom? It, it certainly was in the sense that the Fulton case was, was uh, the outcome was correctly decided, but the, the, the theoretical uh, analysis still is lacking. As one of the uh, concurring justices pointed out, all Philadelphia had to do is is not have any exceptions, and they can do the same thing. They haven't discriminated against the Catholic faith, so it's arguably okay. And, and that's not a correct result. That's not the right way to, to uh, resolve those questions. So there's still work to be done. So it, it was a mixed bag. <laughs> The, the the displaying obviously of a nativity scene on public property. What's what's your involvement in those kinds of things, or what is the Thomas More involvement in those kinds of things? Some years ago, there was a uh, an effort in Chicago to put a nativity scene in uh, the Daily Plaza, which is right there in the center of the loop. And uh, the city of Chicago said, "We don't want a nativity scene. We can't. It's too. It's too. Uh, you know, we can't take a. We can't support." religious exercise like that it's 
it looks bad for government to do that. You know, the First Amendment says that the government cannot sponsor a religion. Uh, but it also says that you have a right of free exercise of religion. So the question is, are those two opposed to each other? Well, as a result of that dispute at Daly Plaza, a judge in Chicago came out strongly saying, hey, if you permit um, political speech and other kinds of commercial speech, then you have to permit uh, religious exercise, religious speech. That's a non-discrimination principle, as we were talking before, but it's, it's something that's important to recognize because government oftentimes won't uh, won't allow a religious exercise on public property because they think, oh, then we're going to sponsor a religion. And so there's a fair amount of case law that deals with that issue constitutionally. And after that occurred, there was um, a, a funding source here in Chicago who said anybody who puts a... Uh, a crash in a public space, especially a state capital, I'll pay for that crash and send it to them. So as a result of that, we have over 25, over half of the states in the United States now have annual uh, nativity displays as a result of our efforts and the efforts of people who are, you know, who, who want to make sure that, that you can exercise your faith even in the public public square. And so we, every year, we basically run interference for private people who want to uh, ask their government for an opportunity to put a crash, a nativity display, in a public space. And, and so we help people do that in, in, in counties and, and in states, wherever people are willing to stand up to be counted. And it's an important symbol that we, we think it's an important symbol to show that we have rights in this country to exercise our religious faith, and they're not—they're not, they're not uh, to be uh, canceled by government. So uh, we do that every year, and we're uh, proceeding along our goal to have a nativity display in every state capital in the country, and we're—you know—we we make progress every year. So it, it's a, a wonderful way of bringing the message home as to what Christmas really is about. If you don't have one, how, how do people even know what it's about? It's so it's so commercialized, so secularized. People have forgotten what Christmas is all about. So it helps to educate people that as to what what uh, Christmas is. The word Christmas starts with Christ, so uh, it's very difficult uh, to be on the sidelines and say what are they what are they thinking. Uh, what are they talking about? Uh, but they just, you know, they, they just don't want the practice of religion. And, and that's that's, you know, I think part of the problem we have in this country. Um, one of the things that happened last weekend that uh, just it came out of the blue, at least for me, um, is that uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, who has obviously been, been the leader uh, or at least one of the leaders in this fight against the um, the the covid uh, virus this pandemic, um, he received the Humanist of the Year Award, um, which in humanism is a religion that uh, uh, says there may or may not be a God, but it makes no difference because God has no effect here on earth. So um, to, to know that the guy who is running things is not a religious person at all, um, but is a humanist, um, believing only that in man, um, all of a sudden we, we get a, a total different view. And I know that's not the topic he came on the show to discuss, but just as you were talking about the nativity scenes and the fight against religious values, because it's at the top of my mind this week. It, it's clearly uh, of concern to a lot of people that religious um, 
practiced by Americans is declining and uh, among young people. And, and so it, 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 sh- it should be a matter of concern because society really is held together by beliefs that are essentially uh, theological. Um, and, and you can't really live a life with, with meaning unless you have a worldview that's informed by the divine and things that are beyond science, so to speak. It's important for people to recognize that, and, and, and it's important for all of us to have courage to, to exercise our faith in the, in the public arena and to insist on our right to do that. And otherwise, everybody is less free as a result of that. This whole cancel culture, you know, it's, it's a way of making people unfree. Oh, I can't do anything. I can't say anything. Oh, somebody might say something against me. I better keep my mouth shut. All that stuff is very bad for our country. We need a vigorous democracy where people can speak and say things that are uh, that others others may disagree with. <clears throat> That's what we try to do as a law firm and support the right of pro-life people, uh, people who stand for conscience rights, and let them be heard and let their, their views be, prevail. Otherwise, we're all impoverished as citizens of the United States. And you see what's happening in the rest of the world, like China, where they're clamping down on Hong Kong. They will not allow their people to be free. We don't want to live in a society like that. And we need to act vigorously so that we don't, we don't live in a society like that. We have a democracy and we have to, you know, make sure that we, uh, that it continues to live. And we do that through free speech and through free exercise of religion, working hard, all the things that have made our country great. And and so I, I personally am very, very happy because our clients are very impressive people. And they they stand up for something. They they have a conscience. They they have backbone. And and it's it's easy to admire people like that. What do you see as the future of the pro life movement? I, I think the pro life movement is very vigorous. And what I see is a constant percolating up of people who are are woke. So I think the pro-life movement is going to do very well. The Thomas More Society website is thomasmoresociety.org. They are a fantastic legal, um, pro-life legal group. And I encourage anybody uh, to go to their website, find out the cases that they are involved with. Tom, it's been really great to have you on the show today. I thank you for taking the time to be here. And I wish you much success in all the cases that you're going forward with. Yeah, thank you very much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. As you can see, I enjoy talking about this movement uh, because it's uh, so important and, and special in my own life. And, you know, just for one one comment, we work pro bono. We do not charge our clients any money. So we're there to support everyone out in your audience who is pro-life, who ex- wants to exercise their freedom of religion, and you should feel free to call us up and we'll try and work through any issues you have with, uh, that you're facing and try to support you in, in your mission, your pro-life and pro-religious freedom, pro-family mission. That's our mission. And, uh, you know, we, we do it for free. We rely on, on donations. We have, you know, one good thing is with things being so extreme, there's a lot of people who are say, boy, I need to support this kind of an effort <laughs> of this law firm because we, we, somebody's got to do it. And so uh, we have a lot of supporters, and we encourage anybody to join us in our, in our mission. Thank you well, so thank much, you. Jim. Thank you. I want to thank everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show today.